Amen. Been looking forward to uh, preaching through the book of Hebrews, and today we get to start it uh, inside your bulletin of the sermon notes page. If that's helpful for you to follow along, uh, go ahead and do that there. Spot for you to take notes as well if you'd like, uh, but you don't have to. Uh, here's what I trust. I trust because I've experienced it that God works through the preaching of His Word, that over the course of my life, God has used multiple sermons, not just one here or there, but kind of a, a load of sermons stacked one on top of each other to shape and mold the way that I think, the way that I see God, and to shape my heart. And my hope is that that would happen week after week as we sit together under, as I now sometimes have the opportunity at most Sundays to stand up and preach the Word of God. We want to be molded by it. We want the Holy Spirit to change us as we submit ourselves to Him. Today we start this sermon series in the book of Hebrews that is a unique book in many ways. Unique in that we don't know the human author of it. Unique, too, in that it's basically a sermon. In the New Testament, we have narratives like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. They just tell a story, right? And then we have a lot of letters, like 2 Timothy, we just got done going through, like Romans, like 1 Peter, like Jude, all of these letters. And then we have apocalyptic stuff, like the book of Revelation. But Hebrews is kind of unique. It's not really set up like a letter. Basically, the last chapter of it is a letter form, but the first 12 chapters are basically a sermon, a sermon with one attempt to, I think, convince the audience of a certain thing. And so who is the audience? Who is the book of Hebrews? What is the sermon from Hebrews? Who is, who's, who's the target of it? Well, it is this. It is Jewish people in the 60s AD who had put their faith in Jesus, but seemed to be tempted to turn away from Jesus, maybe back to their old religion, or maybe to try out something new. We don't know exactly why they might feel so tempted and why this sermon then was preached to them. It could have been because persecution was certainly on the rise, and maybe they would get more respect if they were members of their old religion rather than members of this new sect of Christianity. Maybe it's just because they lived in a world like we live in with all sorts of attractive options and they were increasingly less convinced that Jesus is better than all of it and so they were tempted to turn away. Either way, the aim of this book or sermon, I think, is this. To highlight the greatness of Jesus and convince them to stick with Jesus because Jesus is better. That's what I think the book of Hebrews is written for. So, here's the question for us. Why should we spend time in it? Why am I excited to preach a sermon series through the book of Hebrews? Because if we're honest, this is one of the books in the New Testament that maybe you haven't spent as much time in. I think generally the church hasn't spent as much time in the book of Hebrews because I, probably it's complicated. There's some stuff in the book of Hebrews that doesn't seem extremely straightforward. It is filled with Old Testament references and allusions, and if we're honest, a lot of us aren't as familiar with the Old Testament as maybe we ought to be. And so we open a book like Hebrews, and it's like, oh, that's kind of hard to understand right here, and it doesn't maybe seem all that relevant all the time. 
but I am convinced that it is. And so I hope that as I now preach a sermon series to a group of not Jewish people thinking about turning back to Judaism, but primarily Gentile people in the year 2022 AD in and around Iowa Falls, Iowa, that I want to preach this message to you who might feel, maybe you're a Christian, but you've been a Christian for some time, and, and hearing about Jesus doesn't give you goosebumps anymore. Like, like you just feel kind of dry. Or maybe Christians that are feeling tempted at this time in your life, you're looking at all the world has to offer, and you're, you're tempted, you're lured into some of that and wondering if maybe any of that is better than Jesus, or maybe you're just the kind of person that right now you're at a time in life where your problems are mounting, and in many ways your problems look bigger than Jesus. And I want to convince all of us, I want to convince those of you that are not Christians, maybe coming here for whatever reason, I want you to hear that Jesus is better than anything else that you might choose to worship. So, I think this book is extremely relevant for us, and the aim of this sermon series is going to be very similar to the aim of the sermon to the original audience, and that is this. I want to, in this series, highlight the greatness of Jesus and convince us to stick with him because Jesus is better than anything. And so, today, uh, the message starts off uh, hitting hard right away. Jesus is the better revelation and Jesus is better than angels. And I think you'll notice as I read through this now that, that the method just seems to be just kind of pounding us hard with this right away. It's going to be filled with Old Testament reference after Old Testament reference, trying to convince us of this truth that Jesus is better than anything, particularly here, Jesus is better than angels. So, here's the aim of the message today, that we will be in awe of what God says about the superiority of the Son, and we would then submit to Him. That's my goal. I want us to be in awe of what God says about the superiority of the Son, and that we would then submit to him. And that doesn't matter how good I preach, I can't make that happen. We believe that only God can make that happen. And so we're going to start by praying and then just reading the very word of God. If you're able to, would you stand as we read the word of God? First, let's pray. Father, knowing that, that I can't accomplish what I want to accomplish, I just come to you praying that you would again in me as you have, as I've studied this, that you would in all of these people, wherever they're at today, feeling dry, feeling tempted, not yet a believer, feeling anxious, whatever it might be, I pray that you would right now, by your spirit, for our joy, for our good, and for your glory, be at work in such a way that Jesus is exalted and magnified, and we are more and more convinced that he is better than anything else. Help us with that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's hear God's word, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You can be seated. First point is this, and we're going to spend most of our time, just so you know how it's weighted, we're spending most of our time on the first three verses. The first three verses, I think, say this, that God has spoken by his son and that Jesus is the better revelation. I told you, this this is like a sermon more than it is like a letter. All of the letters, remember, usually start out with like, Paul, an apostle of God, by the will of Christ Jesus, to so and so, grace and peace to you. That doesn't start this way. How does this book start? This book starts by hitting hard right away and with some really good news. Good news that these people who were Jewish would have already believed. They knew this. He would say this thing in verse 1 and they would say amen to that. And this is good news. Listen again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Remember, there, were, there had been no new scriptures written for the 400 years or so before Christ was born, but for centuries before that, God's word spoken in many times and in many ways through the prophets, right? We know that part of the Old Testament, their scriptures, we call now the Old Testament, right? The Hebrew scriptures we call the Old Testament. Part of that is the prophets, but, but this, I think, is shorthand for all of the Old Testament because people like Moses would have been referred to as a prophet and Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Right? So these people who acted as mouthpieces for God, who wrote down the very word of God, and the good news in all of it is that God speaks. That God is not some stone idol as the God of many, gods of many of the nations around them, but there is a God, a living God, an eternal God who has spoken in many times and in many ways through the prophets. And so these are people who had access to and great knowledge of, in many cases, what we now call the Old Testament. This is good news. But we know, and they now knew as well, that this was just the first part of the story that all of the Old Testament was leading up to one person. And that person is Jesus. And that's what we see in verse 2. Verse 2, but in these last days, now remember, when are the last days? He says, in these last days. The days that 
they're writing this in. In 60s AD are the last days. In 2022 AD, we're still living in the last days. The last days are the days between the ascension of Jesus into heaven and the return of Jesus from heaven. These last days. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Reminding them that all that they knew from the Old Testament, all of it had pointed to, hinted at, all that they had longed for, all of it fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. So in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This is Jesus, God's better revelation. And then it says this. There's just going to be, just get ready for this. This whole string of beautiful, glorious, like pounding it into us statements about the position and power of Jesus. Listen, I put them in different, different colors on the screen. So the black ones are about the power of Jesus, the, the yellow, the position. Is that the right way? Yeah. Yeah, position of Jesus in black, power of Jesus in uh, one way or the other. You'll see it. Yeah, we're, there we go. Got it. Power is in yellow, position in black. Listen, listen to this. I love this passage. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. This is about the position of Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things. God had spoken through all sorts of prophets who were his mouthpieces, but none of them were the eternal son who is the heir of all things. All things belong to him. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, I didn't get the quote up on the screen, but this is a good one, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of the human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Right? All things belong to him. And so God the Father has made his eternal son the heir of all things. All things belong to him. This is the kind of position that Jesus the Son has. This is the kind of power he has. Keep going there in verse 2. The last part of verse 2 says, through whom also he created the world. Get your mind around this, that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is the one through whom the world was created. That means all things that exist. Planets and plants created through him. Oxygen and oxen created through him. Seemingly infinite space and a beautiful infant's face, all created by, through, for him. He created, through whom he created the world. As Pastor Nick read to get us started this morning in John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The power of Jesus and the position of Jesus Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. It's right that when we look at creation, we should be in awe of what God has created. Romans chapter 1 tells us that we can know something about the eternal power and divine nature of God by looking at what he's created. That is a good gift. Yet, we cannot see the radiance of the glory of God anywhere 
better than in the Son of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We can know something about the divine nature of God by looking at what he's created, but if you really want to know, you want to know what is God like, what is his nature, what is his character, the way we know that is by looking at the Son, who is the exact imprint of his nature. And then again, his power. Look at the end of verse, well, the middle of verse 3. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not only did he create all things, but he upholds all things. It's not that Jesus was involved in creation and then stepped away and kind of let everything run on its own like one of those robot vacuum things, right? That's not it. He's actively involved, not just in creation, but in upholding the universe by the word of his power. When the author of Hebrews said this, think about this. In the year 60 AD, what did they know about the universe? A fraction of what we know now. What, what do we know about the universe right now? A fraction of what there is to know right? We know so little about this universe except for we know that it is upheld by the word of his power. Think about this universe, the, the delicate balance of like gases and elements and tilt and sun and heat and all these things uh, that, that keep us on this planet along with this beautiful variety of life on this planet. Uh, everything there held together upheld by the word of his power. There's not a way that you can look at that and think that all happened by chance or that all continues to exist by chance. There is one who is holding it all together and it tells us here that it is the eternal son of God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. So, so the reason that we, we spin on our axis, like the whole globe uh, spins on its axis uh, one time every day, like we spin around, and we never spin off of it because Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. We orbit around our sun one time every year, and we never fly out of orbit because Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. Mariah and I right now are reading Voyage of the Dawn Treader in the Chronicles of Narnia, and at the, at the end of that book, um, I can't remember it exactly because I didn't put this in my notes. I was just thinking about this as I was talking. Uh, he's talking about, like, oh, you live on a planet that's like a ball? That must be so fascinating. Uh, have you ever been to the spot where the people walk upside down, right? So, so trying to think about, like, just it's fascinating that, like, gravity and just the way everything kind of works, like, all of it upheld by the word of his power. And so, I know, like, kids, you're ready to go back to school soon, and some of you, like, you look forward to it. Some of you love learning. Some of you it's, it's harder for. But listen to this. Everything you study in physics and chemistry and biology and math. All of that is just evidence that we have a universe created by and upheld and held together by God. By God the Father and by the Son who holds the whole universe up by the word of his power. We're still not done with verse 3. It says this then, after making purification for sins... 
This is going to be a theme. Here he's kind of like introducing a theme that's going to show up in the rest of the book, so I'm not going to spend much time on it here. But at the heart of Jesus' ministry is not just creating and upholding the universe, but coming and shedding his blood, making purification for our sins. The Jewish people hearing this message, they grew up knowing of their need for purification for sins before a holy God. Their whole sacrificial system reminded of them of that again and again and again. And Jesus is the one who came and made purification for the sins. And then listen to what it says. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When do you sit down? When your work is done, right? After making purification for sins. He didn't have some more yet to do as far as making purification for sins. He had done everything he needed to do. I didn't even realize this until I studied this a little more in looking at this passage. That, you know, in the Old Testament tabernacle, where God's people would gather together to worship him, and the priests would offer sacrifices and things like that, there was nowhere to sit. There was nowhere to sit, no purple padded chairs. Like there, there, was nowhere, there was nowhere to sit there because sacrifices were being continually made. The only seat there was the mercy seat, which was on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which no one would ever touch, let alone sit on. So there's nowhere there to sit because the priests work in making sacrifices when they're on duty, never really done. But Jesus, after making purification for sins, is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is his position. So, there's the sermon introduction. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is not like some slow, hook him with a funny joke or a cute little story about puppies kind of sermon introduction. Right? This is overwhelm them with the glory of Jesus. Let them know of his position, of his power again and again. In order that, that right off the bat, they're going to be engaged and tuned in and hopefully in awe of Jesus. This is a persuasive, pounding, pulsating pronouncement about the position and power of Jesus. I would be engaged if I was one of them. I hope that we're engaged as we sit here. But are you? I don't know. <laughs> You're like, hey, that guy up there is yelling a lot. I'm not totally sure what he's saying. Or, or I'm hearing that, but I guess I've heard most of that before, and you kind of just shrug it off. Are you, listen, are you in awe of the power and position of Jesus? Maybe, maybe God saved you a long time ago. You've been around the church for some time now. You've heard lots of sermons. You've sung lots of songs. You've read lots of scripture. You can answer a lot of questions in Sunday school. But maybe it's been a while since you've just been in awe of Jesus. Maybe, maybe you need to pause. Actually, let's just do that now. Let's pause because I can't make that happen. We've got some more to go through. Let's pause and pray and ask that God would cause us to be in awe of Jesus. God, w- would you do that? I know that my words aren't doing your word justice. But I pray that even now, through the preaching of the word, or maybe later when, when, when we open the Bible again later today at home, would you impress us again? Would you just astound us again and overwhelm us again? 
with glorious truths like these ones about your son, who, who is the better revelation, who has been appointed by you as the heir of all things, through whom you created the world, would you cause us to be in awe of your son, who is the radiance of your glory in the exact imprint of your nature, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, and who after making purification for our sins sat down at your right hand, would you, would you help us to be in awe of him again? Please do that in us for, for our good and for your glory. Amen. So we got through three verses. I told you we'd spend more time there. And, and, and we're going to spend less time on verses 4 through 14. This is when the argument starts. Um, by the way, just, just a note about structure of the rest of, I think, the book of Hebrews in many ways. There's, there's a, a communication with the Jewish, Jewish audience saying, like, you think these things are good, and they very well might be, but Jesus is better. That's kind of the ongoing argument. You think these things are good, and they very well might be, but Jesus is better. And in the first couple of chapters, the topic is, you think angels are good, and they are, but Jesus is better. Just a quick little biblical context on angels. We see angels show up all over Scripture. You start thinking about it, oh, angels show up quite a bit. But even though they show up quite a bit, Scripture doesn't tell us a whole lot about the, the nature of angels. We know that na- angels are created by God, right? They're created by God as angels. So, by the way, people don't die and get wings and become angels, right? We don't even know that angels have wings. Scripture doesn't tell us that. People just make that stuff up, right? But we do know from Scripture that angels are beings created by God who who do what God has them do. They are sent often as messengers of God with a message. And oftentimes when people encounter angels, remember their reaction, sometimes people want to worship them and often people fear them. So they are amazing created beings, but they are not to be worshipped because they are not God or they are not gods in any way. They're just a part of God's creation. But throughout history, probably in part because we don't have a great uh, description of the nature of angels laid out for us in Scripture, people have been fascinated with angels and maybe sometimes too fascinated to the point of worshiping them. And it seems that might be part of a problem here amongst the Jewish people who would become Christians in the first century, that there is a fascination with angels that has gone far enough that the author of Hebrews feels like he needs to take two chapters to convince them that Jesus is better than angels. One of the reasons um, that, that we're not spending as much time on verses 4 through 14 is I don't feel like I need to convince most of you that Jesus is better than angels. This might not be an area where you're really struggling here today. But I don't want us to miss in verses 4 through 14 some of the glorious things that God says as we look at uh, what he says about his superiority over angels. So let's do that relatively quickly. In verses 4 to 7, I think you could summarize those as saying this. Jesus is God's son, and angels are not. Jesus is God's son, and angels are not. So, right off in verse 4, 
having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So his name is superior to that of angels. And then he's going to begin. In your Bible, I, I put it in black up here on the screen. In your Bible, most likely, everything's kind of aligned to the left. And then when there's a quote from the Old Testament, it's put into the center. Okay, so that's how you know, oh, he's quoting from something in the Old Testament, and we'll see that a lot in the book of Hebrews. And you see it a ton here in chapter 1. And here in chapter 1, the first two quotes come from Psalm chapter 2 and 2 Samuel 7. So a messianic psalm that pointed ahead to Jesus, and God's covenant with David that pointed ahead to Jesus, and he's taking them and saying, these scriptures that you know well as a Jewish person, now you know as a Christian that these were pointing ahead to Jesus. Right? So, quoting from Psalm 2, you are my son. Oh, wait, verse, verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say? Okay? So remember, he's setting up this argument. God never said this to angels. That's the answer. God never looked at an angel and said to an angel, you are my son, today I have begotten you. But he does look at his son and say that. Jesus. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God never said that to an angel, but he did say that of Jesus. Angels were created by God, but Jesus, as the Son, has eternally existed. He was enthroned by God as Son in his resurrection and ascension, and he's going to put angels in the rightful place. So look at verses 6 and 7. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Every year we do a Christmas program. How many, of you have, how many of you have been an angel in the Christmas program before, either here or somewhere else? number of you have been an angel, right? What do angels do? What's the angel's part in the Christmas story? Aside from announcing, they're there to just worship Jesus, to worship the newborn king, right? And so he uses a, a quote from the end of Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32 to say, that too was about Jesus. Listen, you want to see how Jesus and angels are related? You know that Jesus is better because angels worship Jesus, right? So Jesus is better because angels worship him. And then verses 8 to 14, Jesus is the eternal king and angels are not. Jesus is the eternal king and angels are not. I love these verses, 8 through 14, and the Old Testament quotes that come with them that remind us. Here he's going to use three different psalms. Psalm 45, Psalm 102, and Psalm 110. I think pretty much every Bible, when there's an Old Testament quote, there'll be a tiny little letter right next to it. And then you look down at the bottom of your Bible, and it tells you where that's coming from. Okay? So, so that's, how, that's how we know where these are coming from. That's not like some special pastor superpower that I have. You can do it if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, let us know, and we'll get you a Bible. Okay? So... What we've got is quotes from three different psalms that show that Jesus is the eternal king and angels are not. I imagine myself, as I was looking at these, imagining myself to be one of those first century Jewish people who had become a Christian who was acquainted well with all these psalms. This was their hymn book. This is what they grew up singing when they got together. This is what they grew up praying when they got together. And so now I just imagine the author of Hebrews taking us through these psalms and, and me sitting there thinking, oh, that one was about Jesus. Oh, that one was about Jesus too. And that one, that one was about Jesus, right? So he's taking all of these things and applying them to Jesus, and, and they're powerful passages. 
Look at in verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus is the eternal king. And then verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Great verses. Man, the the earth is going to wear out. The stars are going to burn out. But Jesus is God's eternal Son. And then again, emphasizing his position in verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And the answer is none of them. He never said that to an angel, but God says that to his son. Again, this time quoting from Psalm 110. Are you convinced yet that Jesus is better than angels? Well, just really quick, he kind of adds this. Are they not, referring to angels, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels serve Jesus, are sent out by him to accomplish what, what he needs accomplished. But Jesus is better than angels. I'm convinced of that. The author isn't convinced that he's convinced the audience of that yet, though. And so next week when we come to chapter 2, the argument continues, but in a much different way. And so you're going to notice a contrast where especially in chapter 1, Jesus is exalted king over all things, and therefore he's better than the angels. Next week, go ahead and read ahead. Read ahead, pray ahead. We also mentioned, if, if you did the Second Timothy Bible study, we were studying ahead of the sermon. That's valuable. Maybe you want to study ahead of the sermon on your own. We put some of those scripture journals on that back counter. If you want to pick one up, go ahead and pick one up if that's going to be helpful for you. And if they're gone, write your name down on that list and we'll get you one. But next week, chapter 2 is also powerful, but in a very different way, showing that Jesus is better than angels. I want to close with this point of application, though. If Jesus is the eternal king, and he is the very son of God, then we ought to submit ourselves to him, because he's superior to everything else. So that's the final point of application. I want to address a few different people. I want to address, first of all, an easily impressed Christian. An easily impressed Christian. Most of us, I think, are easily impressed by something. Something that we've tried to do, and we've seen other people do it a lot better. Okay, well, I don't even know if we had announced this. Our church softball team was undefeated this year. We we're 4-0. and Man, we got some good athletes in our church. But you start comparing us to people like Aaron Judge, like, yeah, we don't have that, right? He is a superior being when it comes to an athlete, right? Maybe you also, uh, you, you look up to a superior whatever. You're an artist, so you look up to a superior artist. You love music, and there's these, this person in this band that you just, man, nobody's better than them. Like, so there's always things that we're impressed by. Even, even in the Christian world, this Christian band, this Christian artist, this Christian pastor, we, we have these pedestals we put people on and, and recognize we're easily impressed. I want us to look at a passage like this and see those things in their rightful place and recognize, oh, Jesus is better than any of that. Jesus is better. I want to speak to 
the anxious Christian. Those of you who feel like you don't have control or like things seem to be spinning out of control in this, the, the future, that's part of what anxiety is, just looking at the future and not, not understanding it, not knowing, like, and, and what if this, what if that, and there's just fear about the future. It seems so uncertain. This isn't like a quick fix, but, it, but it's something that needs to be done. You need to hear again and again this truth. Jesus is on the throne, and he will reign forever. So even when you feel like you can't hold yourself together, you need to know that Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. He's holding the whole universe together. He's got you. You're going to be okay. To the feeling dry Christian, I just, just go back to these three verses again and just pray through them this week. God, help me to see the glory of you in the face of your son. And those of you who are not yet a Christian, I know this about you, even if I don't know you all that well. I know, I know that you bow down to something. We're wired to worship. All of us bow down to something that we see as greater. Let me tell you, if you do not bow down to Jesus as Lord and Savior, you need to know this, that whatever you're giving your life to, whatever you're bowing down to, is not better than Jesus. And I hope that today would be the day that you would recognize that as sin. That worshiping anything other than Jesus as Lord and Savior, that's sin before a holy God. And that today would be the day where you finally submit yourself to him. Love to talk to you more about that if that's a work that God is stirring up in your heart this day. So come and find me after the worship service. I love this passage. I love this book. I hope that over the weeks to come, our church is convinced more and more and more that Jesus is better than anything so that we would submit our lives to him and live more and more in awe of who he is. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you have spoken in these last days by your son. Thank you that he is seated at your right hand because he has made purification for sins. There's no work left for him to be done in that way. God, I pray that you would help us to be in awe of him, in awe of his position, in awe of his power. And would you help us, God, to submit our whole lives to him? To him to whom belongs all glory, honor, and praise. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. God's throne.